So the first reading is from 2 Kings chapter 4, and if you'd like to follow it along, it's page 261 in the Bibles in the seats. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbours for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. One day, Elisha went to Shunan, and a well-to-do woman was there, who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know this man who often comes our way as a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day Elisha came. He went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite. So he called her and he, she stood before him. Elisha said to him, Tell her, You have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son of her, and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, Call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, You will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. And she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she went out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. 
and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. The second reading is from Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 24, and that's on page 727 of your Bibles. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let me add my welcome. It's great that uh, you're able to be with us today, whether it's uh, your first or one of many times. Uh, you may have noticed if you're a regular, there's a, a whopping big wreath above our heads. The, the, the curtains have changed to purple in the background. For those of you who watch church calendars closely, we're in Advent. Um, that's just a fancy way of saying we're looking forward to uh, the celebrating the arrival of Christ. We look back to the King having come. We look forward to his coming again. Uh, And so we're preparing, I suppose, as best we can by looking at the Book of Kings, the history of Israel, seeing what came before that we might delight even more in the King who is coming. Uh, If you can have 2 Kings chapter 4 open in front of you, that would be a great help uh, as we go through it. But how about I pray that God might speak clearly to us this morning. Our Lord and Father, we are thankful for your many mercies to us. And not least, we're thankful that Uh, In your kindness, you have chosen to speak to us and not leave us ignorant of you. Uh, Father, we ask that this morning, as we look at your word, uh, that you would bring it to life in our hearts and minds. Uh, Speak to us clearly and plainly. May we know you and all your ways, and may they bring us great joy. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read a powerful article on the importance of loving Christ earlier this week. Uh, A a genuine love of Jesus is not just something that you want to argue for fanatics, for for religious enthusiasts who are out there, for the zealots, but actually every reasonable Christian must possess a real love for Jesus. Uh, To quote from the article, our very salvation is bound up with it. Life or death, heaven or hell depend on our ability to answer the simple question, do you love Christ? See, a normal Christian doesn't go through the religious motions. Uh, The normal Christian likes to think of Jesus. They like to hear about Jesus. They like to read about Jesus. They they want to please Jesus. They they like Christ's friends and so they want to be with them. They, They care for Jesus' reputation. They want to talk to him. They want to be with him. That is, normal Christian loves Jesus. But I know that that love can be tested. You know, there's the disappointments of work, uh, the challenges of ageing, there are relationships that crumble, there are dreams of family life that don't get met. Uh, the past few months in certainly our church family, our broader church family, I've been reminded how deeply our love of Christ can be tested. You know, to love Christ is essential, but we can only do it because he first loved us. Uh, and this morning, I, this is a chance for us to have our love for Christ refreshed by seeing the God who is good to all. I asked someone the other week uh, if he knew that God loved him. And he said, oh, he knew it in his head, but not in his heart. I then asked him if he thought Jesus wanted what was best for him. And he wasn't sure. See, what he needed, like all of us, was a clear reminder of the love and the goodness of God. And that's what 2 Kings gives us today. Uh, one, one clear point, I hope we leave remembering the goodness of God to all. It's the overarching theme of, of 2 Kings 2 to 8. There's a big chunk in, chunk in chapters 2 to 8. Um, we're not going to look at it all in detail, just the middle of it. But we, we need to know, that we need to appreciate the circumstances if we're going to understand the goodness. See, God is speaking to a people who don't want to listen. So kings, we've, we've followed the decline from glory in about 1,000 BC. It, it split into two kingdoms. I think we're going to get a flash of that in a moment. Brilliant. Um, we're in two kingdoms, the northern kingdom. Uh, they were the least faithful, though the bigger. The southern kingdom, uh, well, they were mostly faithful. Uh, our focus is really the northern kingdom. That's where all the attention goes. Uh, our readings pick, picks up in about 850 BC. King Jehoram is on the throne. He's Ahab's son. We, if you were with us last week, we heard of him. Uh, he was one who, in, in 2 Kings 3, we learn, wasn't as bad as his father in that he didn't promote false gods, but he was like the old King Jeroboam and he still promoted worshipping the true God the wrong way. So he kept leading people astray from actually listening to God. Now, Israel do not love the Lord, but God is still making his presence felt. Uh, so he's taken his prophet Elijah up, but he's still got a word for them. Uh, it's passed on to his heir, Elisha. Uh, in 3.12, we, we read of the word of the Lord being with Elisha. That is, God is still speaking to people who don't want to listen. And what he wants them to hear is his goodness to all. In 2 Kings 4 and 5, the, the middle of this chunk, the, the section we're looking at, we get this series of um, short stories, of vignettes, layered on top of one another, showing how God is opulently good. 
So in the 1950s, there was a, an advertising campaign. A, a company was uh, charged with um, the challenge of selling more ice creams. You'd think that that's easy enough. Uh, the ads came in, in their original campaign, focused much more on the superior quality, the, the flavour of their ice cream. Uh, but they did a little market research to, and they discovered that people really have an emotional connection with ice cream. Maybe that's you. Uh, you're already excited. Uh, you know, memories of childhood, sitting on the porch, eating ice cream out of soup plates, so much ice cream you could drown in. That was the kind of memories people associated. So ice cream was about abundance. It was about pleasure, luxury, joy. And so they remarketed. Uh, no more ads of neat servings, one scoop per cone, but overflowing bowls, you know, cones with the stuff dripping everywhere. That was the t- way to reach people, you know, to see the abundance, the overflow. And the vignettes of chapters 4 and 5 are layered on top of one another like an overflowing bowl of ice cream. You know, we are meant to see not just that God's good, but he's opulently good. Uh, the Belgic Confession puts it, God is the overflowing fountain of all good overflowing fountain of all good and that's what people who don't want to listen to him had to know and it's what we we whose love gets tested need to be reminded of now the first dollop we get is in the start of chapter four god's goodness to the the helpless and nameless in verse one we meet a desperate woman her husband is dead Her, her boys are about to be taken as slaves to pay off debts she is grieving one loss she's about to grieve two more Now, all this, if you look at the detail in verse 1, all this, even though her husband had been faithful to the Lord, back in the hard times, back when Queen Jezebel was persecuting people for serving the Lord, you know, it's it's that perennial problem of the faithful suffering. And she cries to the Lord's messenger. And he starts in verse 2 with, I suppose, the very symbol of her pain. You know, he, he, he starts with her one possession, the only thing she has, and from there, God meets her needs. You know, at Elisha's command, she, she goes to the neighbours, she borrows jars, she miraculously fills them. In verse 7, Elisha's final words, if you flick over. Go, sell the oil, pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. You know, sell, pay, live. God sees her desperation and he gives her life again. And we never get her name because it doesn't matter. God's goodness is not reserved for those with a reputation. You know, the point of this little vignette, this little dollop, this story, you know, know that God is good to the desperate, not those with a situation, not those with a great reputation. A minister I know was woken by a homeless guy knocking on his door, a man asking for money, for housing. The minister did a check-up, it was legit, except the bloke had only asked for about $100 when really closer to 200 was needed. Uh, so the minister spoke to his wife, who was clear, just write the cheque, we've got a place to live, he doesn't. And that was thinking like gods, isn't it, who, who does good to the desperate. Now, the second dollop is his goodness to the faithful remnant. Uh, in verse 8, we, there's a woman sta- uh, of great standing, of reputation down in Shunem. Uh, Shunem is about 25 k's southwest of the Sea of Galilee. It's Israelite territory. She's a God-fearing woman. And what starts as uh, just an occasional meal for Elisha when he passes by uh, leads to her building a, getting a husband to build a granny flat, a bed sit, uh, in verse 10, so that he can stay whenever he wants. Uh, and Elisha wants to bless her for her kindness. So in verse 16, he promises her a son. 
You know, in one sense, it meets um, her lack and her longing. In another sense, it's her security for when her husband passes away. And she can't believe it. She doesn't want the torment of false hope after what we can only guess is years of longing. And then very matter-of-factly, verse 17, the promised boy is delivered. Now, at this point, we're, we're to see how, how lavish God is in his gifts. You see, there's a biblical pattern of God overturning um, barrenness, but normally it's to serve some big, greater salvation purpose. So Sarah has uh, Isaac in her old age to keep God's promise that he would, he would have, uh, Abraham would have a family that would bless the world. You know, and, and Samson was born to a childless couple that he might, in due time, be raised up and lead and rescue God's people. But, you know, this Shunammite son is a no one. He doesn't go on and do anything. You know, you can read on the rest of the Bible. He doesn't come again. He doesn't do anything particularly special. Doesn't There's no bigger purpose going on. It's just God's generosity. Yeah, it's just a lavish gift. Yeah, and as the story rolls on, the boy grows uh, and dies in a tragic accident. Uh, in verse 22, in response to it, the woman shows her faith. You know, she doesn't go to her husband, she doesn't tell anyone else, she just goes straight to Elijah. In the face of death, what is she doing? She's clinging to the Lord by clinging to his prophet. In verse 30, she says, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. She is clinging to him. And again, God shows his opulent, overflowing goodness. Death gets plundered and the boy gets raised. And the chapter finishes, we didn't read them, but there are two more amazing stories of God's kindness, more dollops of his goodness overflowing, filling the bowl. Uh, In verse 38, uh, the land is in famine. Uh, It's a sign of of judgment on a people who'd been rejecting him and even the faithful get caught up in that. And yet through the goodness of Elisha, uh, their need is met. First in verse 41, a group of prophets are about to sit down and eat this this stew, a poisonous stew. In verse 41, Elisha, Elisha said, get some flour. And he put it into the pot and he said, serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. And then he follows it up with another uh, feeding story. Uh, verse 42 to, to 44, he feeds 100 men with 20 bread rolls. Uh, and then at the end of that chapter, verse 44, he set it before them. They ate and they had some leftover, according to the word of the Lord. That is that... There's leftovers in a land of famine. Over and over and over, God is showing his opulent goodness to to people. A child for the barren, life for the dead, a meal for the hungry. Story after story, our love builds as we see his abundant provision for his people. The clincher is in chapter 5. We didn't read it because we had Dean do such an excellent version of it for the kids a little earlier. Uh, you can read and check that Dean got the details right later on. Uh, it's that final dollop of God's lavish goodness in that he is merciful and good to his enemies, to outsiders. Uh, we meet in 5 verse 1, Naaman, this, this general in the Syrian army. He's not just a foreigner, he had led the crushing of Israel, God's people. Uh, he, in verse 2, we, we hear of an Israelite slave girl who was captured one raid uh, and in his wife's service. We're not given the details, but it's enough to know this guy is a significant enemy of Israel. But the Lord is repeatedly good to him. You know, he's been good in giving him the victories and making him great. He's been good further in healing him from his leprosy. You know, he comes down in, uh, in 5 verse 5 
with 340 kilos of silver and 70 kilos of gold trying to buy God's goodness. But he can't be bought. Instead, he's humbled. Elisha won't ever meet this important man. He just sends the message, washed seven times. And when Naban overcomes that offence, 5 verse 14, he went down, he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God told him. And his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. And it's a complete healing. Complete in the sense it's not just an outward one. Uh, The real shock is that he becomes a faithful worshipper of the Lord. It's an internal cleaning too. God is good to Naaman, not just externally, but internally. Verse 17, Naaman promises that never again will he make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord, but to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. God has been good to this persecutor of his people. God has healed him completely. And these layers of goodness, as we we look and we hear these stories, uh, they are meant to provoke a response. Love the one who is so good. That's how Jesus understood this section of Kings. Uh, We read it in Luke 4, Karen read to us how how Jesus quoted these events to his own generation who didn't want to listen. He he quoted how there were lepers in Elisha's time, but it was Naaman the Syrian who was healed. God's goodness can't be treated with disinterest or disdain. It's even sharper when we consider the, the goodness of Jesus' ministry, isn't it? You know, he cared for the nameless. He, he extended friendship to the unclean. He invited disregarded infants close to him. He, he raised the dead on several occasions, giving joy to the grieving. You know, we read how Elisha uh, fed 100. Jesus fed thousands. Yeah, and he did it more than once. And he did it with less to start. And he did it with basketfuls of leftovers. Now, Jesus was the light to the Gentiles, inviting people of, of all nations, people who are far off, people who are enemies, to come and bask in his good leadership, follow after him. So when we, we consider the, the work of God in Elisha's time, when we are reminded of the, the glorious ministry of Jesus, how can we not love the God who is opulently good to all? Now, do you love Christ, the overflowing fountain of all good? Four implications of God's goodness for, to all for us who love him. First, as we look at Kings, uh, God's goodness recognises our pain. I know uh, there is hardship and there is difficulty that many of us are experiencing now and so you read chapters like this and it just feels distant and foreign. You know, God has shown he can overcome debt and infertility and death and famine and disease And so the massive question that kind of runs in our heads when we read chapters like this is, well, why doesn't God give me those good things? Now, with the exception of famine, I know people in our church are struggling with all these things. Kings gives us a few insights, namely that God recognises our pain. You know, the Shunammite woman is in deep distress in 427 and it's not trivialised by them saying, oh, it's not really a big deal. You know there are people out there doing it tougher than you. It's not palmed off. You know, the fact that God overturns all these things, acknowledges and says, yeah, there is a problem with that and God does know it's bad and it is okay to call pain, pain, as long as it lasts. You have to pretend otherwise and if, if you've been in pain and you have been dismissed along the lines of, oh yeah, but there are people worse off than you, Well, no, that's not God's response. That's not his response. 
But we also see in Kings, God's means of bringing goodness is not necessarily what we expect. Again, in 4.27, God is hidden even from Elisha, his prophet. Why what has happened has happened. We can't always know the details of why something bad is happening, why particular good is denied us. But God's character gives us confidence to copy what the Shunammite woman does, her example. You know, she turns to him with her pain. As someone put it, what can you do when God's mercy has turned to malice? Take the bitter distress and in it keep clutching the God you don't understand. Now, like her, go straight to the Lord. Now, because we know his character of goodness, we can trust that he is bringing good even through pain. Now, because we know that he is able to plunder the grave, we know that he will do it completely, but just now is not the time. You know, 2 Kings 4 and 5 is just a little a sampler of the good future he has secured for all who trust in Christ. And so we love him in our pain. Uh, second implication is that God's goodness humiliates. The, the, the repeated thread that God is good to those who drop their own claim to goodness and they depend entirely on him. So, so Naaman's great problem, it was, it was a stubbornness of heart, not the, the leprosy on the outside. When he was told to wash in the Jordan, he raged and he was ready to store home because you know, God's ways were beneath him. He had to humiliate himself and do things God's way if he was going to experience God's goodness. You know, as we all do when we come to the cross, you know, foolishness to the wise, your eternal salvation can be secured by the shameful death of a carpenter. Now, Kings points out that we, we won't experience God's goodness if we're not humble enough to obey him. While ever you keep doing things your own way, harbouring your own ambitions, your own pride, your own cherished sins, you won't know his lavish goodness. Because ultimately our ways can't deliver the abundant goodness he can. We are to love him in our humility and humiliation. Thirdly, uh, this section affirms God's, God's goodness in affirming all. So this chapter is a, a reminder of just how surprising it is the people who matter to God. You know, that widow that the chapter 4 opens with, she's never named, but she matters to him. God knows her name. You can compare her to King Omri. Now, I'm not expecting you to remember King Omri well. Uh, Omri was a, a previous king of Israel. Um, Omri had established a, a significant dynasty. Um, he brought stability to the northern kingdom. If you go to non-biblical sources, extra-biblical, they actually write up lots and detail lots about his rule. He was a significant ruler. But in 1 Kings 16, he gets about five verses. Uh, this nameless widow gets more. You know, isn't it a surprising thing who, matters to, who actually matters to God? The variety of people who matter to God. The, the nameless widow, the, the wealthy woman, the starving prophets, the military foreign hero. You know, God's goodness affirms all, all matter, even the least significant. Uh, a church in, in Sydney I was told of last week has a group dedicated to those with special needs. Every Wednesday they meet at the rectory with a, a small group of people uh, and they play Uno and they eat and they sing and they have a Bible story. Now there's a church that understands how God's goodness affirms that all matter to him. And if you have found yourself in that spot like that man I chatted to a little while ago that you know, you know God loves you in your head but for some reason not in your heart, be affirmed. 
free yourself to love him, knowing that all matter to him, even you. And finally, God's goodness is uncomfortable. You know, the story of Naaman opens up the reality that God's goodness is so lavish, it's actually quite indiscreet. It's offensive in whom God will love. You know, Naaman had crushed the people of God. He was the kind of guy who was responsible for young Israelite kids being taken from their families and into slavery. And yet God was good to Naaman. God will be kind even to those you don't want him to be kind to. You know, we who've experienced uh, deep hurts and betrayals can sometimes want the love of God to just stop with us and never reach that person over there. Well, sometimes we're a little less intentional than that. You know, we've just made assumptions about people that they wouldn't want to hear the gospel and it'd be uncomfortable for me to share it with them and so we just try and put limits on God. But God's abundant goodness, it pushes us to, to keep loving him by loving others even when it's uncomfortable. So do you love Christ? Even in the midst of tests and trials and difficulties, Remember that he is opulently good, abundantly good, the fountain of all goodness to all. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, We thank you for your goodness that even in the times of difficulty we can look back and see how much you love us by looking at how you have overturned the evils of this world back in Elisha's time, by looking how you have overturned it in the Lord Jesus' time by looking forward to when you'll overturn it completely when he returns. Father, help us to hold on to that goodness, to keep remembering it in the difficulties and keep delighting it that we might be people who truly love Christ in all humility. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.